The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with The Birth Circle, and today I have Dee Gordon. She's a midwife in Heber City, Utah. You can find more about her at genesisbirthcompany.com or on Instagram, Genesis Birth Company. And I'm super excited to talk to Dee about professionalism, education, and informed consent in birth. So Dee, tell me a little bit about your story. So I think what led me here today, this long meandering path, was my first experience um, in birth, which is giving birth to my first child. I went into the hospital, and um, my water broke immediately after being admitted. They put me in a um, delivery room. It wasn't like the now we all labor and deliver in the same room. They put me in the laboring room and kind of told me to wait until it was time. Um, I felt that urge to push, and I felt shaky and queasy and unsettled. And I I reached out to my support team, my family that was there with me and told them, I'm scared and I feel like I'm doing this on my own. And they all started to laugh at me and somebody in particular said, what do you want us to do? Push for you? And so it it uh, it left me feeling very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then I had that urge to push and I had that shaky sensation that a lot of women get, just you have those tremors those all over body and and I didn't know what it was. And I was terrified. And the nurse came in and I told her, I says, I, I really feel like I have to poop. <laughs> and she checked me and she says, oh, no, that's a baby. Hold on. Don't push. Let me call the doctor. So she called the doc in and, you know, he got there at his sweet time. Um, he said, give me a practice push. Let's see what this looks like. And I gave one little half earnest push. And he said, hold on, hold on, hold on. He grabbed the episiotomy scissors and <gasps> cut oh, me. Oh, no. <laughs> without asking. <laughs> And baby shot out, literally fell out. Like he dropped the scissors and had to catch her because she was so ready to be born. I didn't have that um, satisfaction of pushing my baby out. And overall, it was a very disappointing um, and traumatic experience. Um, And I think that was just kind of that first introduction. And I I felt embarrassed that I had asked for help and been denied. Um, I felt disempowered by the fact that I wasn't allowed to push my own baby out. And then I happened to be the last person in the room to hold my baby. Oh, that's not okay. Yeah. So she was passed around from the doctor to the nurse and the nurse gave her to my husband at the time. And then he handed her to my mom and then my cousin held her. And I sat over on the table being sutured and said, can I please see my baby? Wow. So that is why you became a midwife? It was a long road. Yeah. (laughs) It was a long road, but I think that experience really um, compelled me to learn more about compassionate care Mm -hmm. and about giving women the opportunity to have a voice in the process. So do you think that your birth was atypical for the time? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's a, a conveyor belt system. 
and everybody just kind of gets the same treatment and and they act or behave as if everybody's going to be predictable. Oh, so you felt like your birth was pretty much what everybody got at that time. Yeah. That just the, yeah, conveyor belt assembly line birth system. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In one of the areas of the nation that have the most births, they don't really have a lot of time or patience to do something outside of the the norm. Mm. So you went on to have, um, what, 20... 20- Seven more children. <laughs> a lot. A lot of a children. Lot, a lot of so how did you <laughs> so many of the children? <laughs> Just kidding, not twenty-seven. I I never speak in hyperbole ever. So how um how did your births then evolve? Um I with my second, I knew I wanted to do it different, but I didn't quite understand. I had never seen it modeled in any other way. And so I approached it a little bit different. I had a, had a similarly traumatic experience. Um, my first labor being four hours and everybody saying that, oh, your second one's easier. My second one was 18 hours and it was more isolation, um, more of feeling afraid to ask for what I wanted. My third, I had kind of turned a corner. I had seen a natural birth. I had seen, um, I had actually experienced my first doula client before in between those second and third. And that's what kind of... So you had become a doula between your second and third. Yeah, exactly. So in 98, I started the doula training, 1998, Mm -hmm. like 150 years Mm -hmm. ago. (laughs) I was doing the math yet. A very long time ago. And and so then for my third, I had an idea of what I wanted. I, I had voiced more um, requests for support, you know, physical support, emotional support, um, positive environment. Um, and I had a, I had a very good care provider who listened to me. Um, it, it was, it was kind of sad because in the end, I still ended up getting a, a different outcome that I had intended. And that was because we all learned that the nursing staff make the decisions, not just, not generally the provider who you have hired. Yeah. The nurses have a huge impact on how the birth turns out. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think some people expect to go in and be surrounded by the nursing team and the nurses will provide the support. And the, so, so what, what, what's all about that? Yeah, I think people need to realize that when you come into a system like the hospital, um, they're built for a couple of things. They're built for efficiency and they're built for um, liability. And so the nursing staff, they don't have the time or the resources to be your one-on-one support. Mm -hmm. And they kind of have a checklist of mandatory things that they have to get through. Mm -hmm. And so you have to respect that they're um, they're not doing it to be difficult and they're not doing it no. to make your life miserable. Mm-hmm. They're doing it because they have liability. They got to cover their butts and they're doing it because they're, they're taking care of between three and 12 women a night. So they really just don't have the resource mm-hmm. to be that support for you. Um, and so you may hire the most supportive and empathetic provider in your area, but that provider um, in a hospital setting really only spends that last 15 minutes of labor with you and comes in when you're fully dilated and delivers a baby and then sutures you up if need be and then kind of goes on his way. So your nursing staff is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've been to births where the nursing staff, um, one nurse in particular, I remember she held um, the mother in her arms while she cried for a good half an hour. She was working through some emotional things and this nurse made this birth. 
amazing. And then I've had another, um, was at another birth where the mom was bleeding very heavily and I could see the signs of some severe um, hemorrhaging. And the the nurse was just typing on the computer and said, well, you know, if you would stop bleeding, then we'll let you hold your baby. And I was like, what? So, so yeah, I'm not, I don't want this to be like a nurse bashing session at all. Nurses are, (laughs) are severely underappreciated. But the point I'm trying to make is that, um, that you can't plan your birth around a team that you've never met. Exactly. And so, so um, if you're bringing your own team into the room, you can let the nurse do her job and keep you safe and, and make sure all of her hospital protocols are met. And, and she can be watching your birth, making sure you're okay. But if you're surrounded by your team that you pick, then you're more likely to be able to... Um, yeah guide the outcome, right? Absolutely. And I think that's what people need to realize that that's one of the the greatest roles a a doula could have is to come in and be that, um, that mediator, that communicator that, you know, a woman can focus on her labor and she can focus on her deep breathing and going into her happy place and whatever you want to call it. But that doula can be the one that quietly whispers to the nursing staff, Hey, this is what's happening, or these are her desires and kind of help, um, navigate that. Um, but it also eliminates that added stress that the nurses may feel that if mom is feeling unsettled or emotional, that nurse doesn't have to stop doing her medical protocol to come in and be in an emotional support. And emotional support is huge in labor. So explain to me the difference between a doula and like a friend or mother-in-law or even a um, a partner. So the partner's experiencing birth through their own um, perspective. So he's he's becoming, uh, you know, the partner is becoming um, a parent, and they're going through their own emotional journey. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of asking a lot for them to wear two hats. And that hat being the the primary, um, the co-parent and a primary support person. And so there's, there's no replacement. There's not, there's like, if the dad's not there, a doula can't replace the dad. And if a doula, then vice versa. So for the doula versus um, a lay person that has, you know, mom's sister, you know, a lot of them say, oh, my mom has had natural births and so she's going to be my support person. Um, The beauty of having a doula is they've been trained in so many different tips and techniques and skills. Well, so I know you you are actually a doula trainer. So what specifically are you teaching them to do? Well, I teach them acupuncture points or acupressure, excuse me, not puncture. (laughs) Let's not do that in labor. (laughs) Not in labor. Um, I teach them... um, you know, mantras and affirmations, and we teach them positions that, that can help a baby descend or help mom cope with labor. Um, so that, and that's the thing is, you know, we have 30 hours of instruction on how to support a mom physically, like it's physical work. When you're a doula, you have buff arms and, Mm -hmm. and strong legs and you, you really work physically to support a mom. Um, and, and, the nice thing about that is then the dad can focus on being that emotional mm-hmm. support as far as, you know, being there to whisper sweet nothings in her ear and mm-hmm. being there to witness the majesty and beauty of the whole process. So so sometimes, um, well, I've been to many births and they're all, oh, every birth is so different. Even a, a multiple birth, a, a next birth from a mom who's given birth before. But I remember one time um, I was uh, was at a birth where the mom actually was was in the birthing community and had 
like four doulas. And this wasn't because she'd hired four doulas. It was just her friends were all trained doulas and her sisters and stuff. So they were all at the birth. And um, after the the baby was out, almost the first thing she said, she looked up to her team and the tears were running down her, her eye, her, her face. And she just said, you held me the whole time. When you had your hands on me, there wasn't any pain, just pressure. You, you held me. And this was her third baby. And so she'd had... She'd had, you know, previous birth, but she said that was the most amazing thing to have that much physical and emotional support. Well, the oxytocin is flowing. Can you believe four? Do I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm a filmmaker, so I was like on the bed, crowded out of the whole thing because I didn't get it. I've actually, I, I was the midwife for a second time mom that was one of the most popular doulas in Utah. And I can't remember exactly how many people were in that room, but I think there was close to six of us. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what it was. Yeah. is surrounding her and nobody really got fatigued. Actually, one of the gals that was there, she wasn't a doula. She was a good friend. She wore a baby on her back in a in a baby carrier. And so it was literally just... So was this out in a farmhouse in, in, the, in the back of the barn and the <laughs> no, by candlelight? It was a beautiful, uh, I would call it a mansion in Provo <laughs> that, that her parents, um, her she lived with her parents and her parents had won Yard Beautification Award of the Year. So I mean, it was a beautiful environment. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that goes, that just goes to show like, it doesn't really matter where the birth happens. Mm -hmm. It's really about who is there to support you. Yeah. Cause some people want a party and some people want only their partner there and the provider. And, um, sometimes what people don't realize is that the more support people you have in there, it doesn't become a party. It just becomes more support. Yeah. And it really depends on the people that are there. Yeah. So, cause I've been in births where let's say we have um, mom, partner, midwife, assistant, grandma, aunt, and doula. And it can be very disruptive. Yes. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's because maybe grandma, aunt don't quite understand the, um, the sacredness of the environment mm -hmm. and to keep it quiet. And, you know, sometimes they're talking about, you know, the latest TV shows and they're being riotous and laugh loud, you know, and then that's okay. It's just, it, there's a certain time and energy that's appropriate mm -hmm. to surround a mom in birth. And in early labor, it's great to have something to laugh about. It's something to distract yep. you. But when it becomes time to get focused, everybody has to learn to shift that energy. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to have a doula there to kind of set that tone and to remind people. And I can't tell you how many times I've been the bad guy that touches grandma on the knee and quietly says, we really need the environment to shift yeah. into a quiet. <laughs> yeah. So you're protecting your space. Um, I had somebody come up to me and say, um, I want to be a doula, but I'm not lovey-dovey. You don't like touching people. And I said, then I would have hired you because what I needed was a doula to... Um, just hold space for me, just to be there so that I knew psychologically that she was there watching me and she didn't do very much touching, maybe a little bit of counter pressure on my back, but she would tell me, good job. Hey, that was an awesome, that was an awesome one. You did, you moved the baby so much. And I thought I'd be annoyed by that, but I, I ended up really liking that. And some births, the mom is held constantly by the doula. And so, um, we're, a, the birth world is kind of a hundred percent referral based, right? Like you don't, oh, absolutely. you don't get online and you don't Google to who an OB is. You usually ask your friend or somebody in your church or, or community, who did you give birth with? And I think what people need to know is they can actually, these are professionals and they have their own styles and their own education set. And you can pick the professional that matches your style perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing about it is 
there are so many different, even from one birth to the next on the same person, there are so many different needs. Mm-hmm. And and one birth, the mom may want somebody that is very well-versed in clinical, you know, jargon so that if she's in the hospital, she feels like somebody's interpreting for her. And then the very next birth, she may just want the most lovey-dovey, yep. woo-woo, hippie, safe-burning, <laughs> you know, and, and it's all just, it's yep. preference and you just follow your intuition. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm huge on intuition. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I love it when a woman says, I'm choosing this birth because I feel this is right for my body. And people say, well, what, what, last time you gave birth in the hospital, why would you go home? Or last time you were at home, why would you go to the hospital? Why would you switch? And she just says, I just feel this is where I need to be to be safe. Thank goodness. Yeah. And never negate Mm -hmm. a mother's intuition. Yeah. I had a a client that um, she gave birth with me for her third, and then she did a hospital plan birth for her fourth. And um, I sent her a message through Facebook and I just said, I just want you to know, I'm very proud of you for having having made that decision on an independent basis. And she said, I was so worried about disappointing you. I said, no, 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 you misunderstand. I really, my, my goal has always been just listen and respect and honor. The mother is the one that determines the path. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about, um, how doulas are professionals. Um, but I want to go like the whole gamut of what the whole, all of the birth professionals and what kind of training they have. So the the base, we have doulas who, um, can start working with the least amount of training. They don't need a college degree. Um, but they are, have like some of the most hands-on work you can have with a mom. So tell me what kind of, how long does a doula need to train? What does that training look like? How much does it cost? And, and then what a client can look for in that training, you know, certification or what does that look like? Awesome. I, I, first I want to just kind of share a little bit about why I became a doula trainer because I was happy being a doula and I had done it for many, many years. And I think I had only had about 75 births under my belt when I realized there was a pattern of um, gals that would do doula trainings and they would do a, either a distance training or an in-person training. And then they would walk out of this class and feel completely unsure. They mm. weren't, they weren't confident in themselves for whatever reason. And they would call me up and they would say, Hey, I just finished this training but I would love to follow you to a few births so that I can get that confidence and seeing how it's done. Like I read it in the book and I was told about it by my instructor, but I just don't know that I have, I, I quite understand how to do it. And so I mentored doodulas for years. Um, I took them with me to births or I would just take them into my home and say, okay, this is what it feels like to do sacrum pressure. And this is what it feels like to do, you know, where the pressure points are on their feet, et cetera. Um, and it dawned on me at one point that I was spending a lot of time mentoring these gals that had spent a lot of money on trainings and still feeling like they were ill-equipped. And I think that support was missing. So I said, Hey, I'm going to start my own doula training. And I, I started that formally. Um, it's actually been four years this June. Wow. Cool. And I think I have 120 approximately doulas trained worldwide. So Mm -hmm. it's been exciting. But I think what people need to understand is um, just like each doula is going to have their own um, expertise and forte and things that they like to focus on, each doula training is going to do the same thing. You're going to get a different feel, a um, a different outcome for each one. So is this an accreditation type of training or like what are the different types of training? So the doulas are not regulated um, through any government entity. There's no licensing for doulas? So each license or certification comes from the entity that trains them. 
so there's not anybody that is per se like for um, certified professional midwives. They are all overseen by the North American Registry of Midwives, which is NARM. There is nothing equivalent to that for doulas. Mm -hmm. So you can go into any doula training um, and become certified or not certified, you know, and, and when you specify certified versus trained, that really is just a verbiage. That's just a, a technical term. Um, you can finish a four-hour training or you can take um, online courses and then say that you're a certified doula or you can do an in-person 30-hour, mm -hmm. you know, in intensive and be a, a trained doula. So really... So it sounds like doula training is a lot like birth um, childbirth classes and that there's so many different modalities to train. And so you would need to know kind of what, what type of doula you want and then go after that type of training. Yeah. And I think some people get hung up on that certification label. Um, well, it's the only way to differentiate. If you don't know what a doula is, you say, are you certified or are you licensed? But, right. but to give them more vocabulary of what kind of questions do you ask? Like right. maybe do you use essential oils in your, when, you know, or do you use hypnosis? Do you use lots of counter pressure? Do you use, you know, those are the kinds of questions that a mom can learn to ask her doulas? Or? Yeah. And I think it's a good idea to um, ask for reviews from previous clients mm -hmm. um, because I think a doula can make or break a birth. I think a doula that is... Um, Not that births are broken. Never, never break a birth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it that can make it more difficult support. for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. if there's a if there's a mismatch, well, there's it's always if it's a provider mismatch, then the mom Absolutely. always loses. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So if you're not surrounded by the support that that you need that for that mm -hmm. desired outcome, you're going to feel uh, a disappointment. To yeah. be honest, yeah. Um, so I I think focusing on what is their style. And what is their tendency? You know, do they come from the, from the, or throughout the duration? Do they mm -hmm. come at the beginning of labor and they stay with you until baby is at the oh, breast? Oh yeah, what is the expectation? Yeah. Yeah. And How long I, do they stay afterwards? And, and yeah. are you charged at, after 18 hours of labor? Are you charged an additional fee? Like those are the kinds of questions I think are really important mm -hmm. to talk about because, you know, 20 years ago when I was a doula, and I was, you know, doing my first types of support. I never dreamed of putting a 20-hour clause in on a labor because I think that would tell the mom, mm, that you time's care. up. Mm -hmm. You have me for 20 hours. You've paid yeah. me for 20 hours. Time's up. And if you want me to stay longer. But it just takes a couple of those 40-hour births for you oh, to go rewrite your contract. Amen. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Been there, done that. And, got the t-shirt. And, <laughs> and here we, what were we charging? $200, you know, for these beginning oh, births. And then you do, you finish a 40-hour well, yeah, so birth. I want to go back into the professionalism. So there's, um, I, I, as a filmmaker uh, and my photography friend, photographer friends and doula friends, it, it's kind of like um, you have no question that the OB is going to charge you a $4,000 fee, like done. Right. But if you, <laughs> how do you decide what's worth it for a birth? I see so many newbies coming out, both in the photography and the doula world. They come out and they say, oh, I just want a couple births under my belt. I'm doing them for $200. And that is <laughs> not what you expect of a professional. Right, because when an OB graduates college, he comes straight out the gate and he charges his full fee. Mm -hmm. His fee doesn't fluctuate because... How experienced he is. Yeah, exactly. I'm a brand new OB. I do it for $50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that totally plays into women uh, valuing the yes. investment of themselves, like yes. investing in themselves, paying for a training, and then turning around and investing in themselves by saying, this is what I am worth. Mm -hmm. 
and and not shortchanging themselves. I give a little pep talk to all the girls that finish my doula training, and I say, I want you to understand that after you've you've read, you know, I require them to read um, several chapters in different types of books, and then they do a 30-hour hands-on training. And I tell them, when you walk out of this training, you are equipped to charge for your yes. time. Mm-hmm. Just like the OB yes. finishes, you know, you're not charging $12,000 like an OB is. You're charging what's the market value. And the market value really should mm-hmm. reflect the fact that you finished your training. And and I don't think it's fair to expect um, newbies mm-hmm. to go in there and do it for so. free or no, discount. Well, I mean, you've got, you've got um, child care. Many of us have our own children. So you've got child care. You've got eating out that be, to, to accommodate along both feeding my family at home and myself at the long birth. You've got the gas. You've got the opportunity cost missing. I, I have to take off from other things I'm doing. So there's there's a lot that goes into me being able to lay down in my entire life and come support you for 20 hours or however long it takes. And I find that um, that clients... Uh, the clients who want uh, moms who want the, the doula services but don't value the cost of a doula, they're really shortchanging themselves in, in the end. Because if the doula is too tired or if she's not able to cover her expenses at home, she either resents you in the present or she burns out. And that's the worst thing is here we are trying to get women like, come on, women, you can do this. You can have businesses. You can work for yourself. You can support. You can do these things. And then we don't pay them more than $2 an hour. And, right. and then they get burned out. And then we have this cycle of inexperience. And mm-hmm. so it's not like you can just go change a culture overnight, but it's, it's helping people understand that even at the very, very base, the, 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 um, the doulas are still a professional. Absolutely. And that you, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that we can change that culture by comparing it when, and I've, you and I've had this conversation before about weddings. We mm-hmm. have a wedding and it's one day and we spend $3,000 on the dress and we spend mm-hmm. Uh, $1,500 on flowers and then we cater it and we have a venue Mm -hmm. and we do all of these things and we know that it's going to be a a big investment. And in our, in our culture locally, I know there's a lot of nickel and diming and doing it yourself because we want to save money and there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the comparison should be this birth experience, you will never be able to duplicate. You will mm-hmm. never be able to go back and get but, pictures. But no shame, no pressure. No, no, but really, but really like this is, this moment is more important than your wedding. You Absolutely. can never undo a birth. You can't divorce a birth. Yeah. And so this, um, and, and how you out, your outcome of this birth matters, how you feel about yourself and, and affects how you bonded with your baby. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I I like to explain is birth is one of the most vulnerable times in a woman's life. And we can infuse that with um, power and compassion and love so that when she finishes that she looks around the room and she's like, I am so loved and Mm -hmm. I'm so powerful and I'm so capable. Or she can finish that experience and say, I'm embarrassed and I'm weak and nobody was here for me. Mm-hmm. And that's all, and it really is all about that surrounding who's, who's talking to her, who's encouraging her, who's touching her, who's supporting her. Yep. So it's, it's really important. So after d- doulas, there's a little, another step that's a little less known called a Montrese. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell Tell us what Amantris does. Yeah, so like you said, it's a little unknown and it's a little bit tricky because I've had doulas that have, you know, maybe 10 or 15 births under their belt and then their client says, I really don't want to go to my provider for a vaginal exam. Will you do a vaginal exam for me? Or I really don't want to go to my provider because I get white coat syndrome and my, my blood pressure spikes every time I walk in his office. 
or for whatever reason. So the Montrese is really a, a step above doula in that they have a little bit of medical training. Um, but my research has said that it's at minimum an 18 month training that you have to spend time in understanding, be able to, um, interpret Mm -hmm. is really the, the, the component that is important being able to interpret. So you can go in there and, you know, when we were student midwives and we were giving each other vaginal exams, Mm -hmm. it was kind of comical because, you know, there's six of us in a room and we're all laying on the the vaginal exam table and being like, for the picture, (laughs) (laughs) but we would all check the same woman and then talk about it. You know, okay, this is what I felt. This was this, what this was in when, when you touch this texture, how is that? So it's not the kind of thing that you can sit down and say, okay, I was a doula for 60 births and now I want to be a Montrese. It really takes a lot of, mm-hmm. um, investing in, yeah. in that. And Montreses are also not licensed nor regulated Correct. by the government. So you're going to want to, um, make sure that you're hiring somebody that matches. Um, the other thing is scope of practice. You want to make sure because they aren't licensed or regulated, um, you want to make sure that you are still educating yourself and making choices for yourself. You would not want to <laughs> put yourself in a dangerous position by hiring a Montrese who may not um, understand exactly where you are in labor and put you in a yeah, in compromising a, situation. Yeah. In, yeah. A, in a medical compromise and, and, you know, we all want safe outcomes. Yeah. We want safe outcomes for baby. We want safe outcomes for mom. We want everybody to come yep. away in a well-supported environment. I think though Montrese's would be amazing to have working with a, with a midwife or an OB because mm-hmm. they can take some of that load off the, the main care provider and help guide the process, but um, they're not as common. <laughs> yeah, they're hard to find. Yeah. Okay. So then tell me all of the crazy ways you can be a midwife. All the now, crazy we paths. Are, yeah, <laughs> we are recording in Utah. And so um, there, every state has its own rules. And what I love about Utah is that it's one of the most flexible states. So we're going to talk about um, the levels of midwifery in Utah, which is the most very, very flexible. So right. just make sure that you're checking in your state what, what the laws and regulations are uh, according to what's legal for a midwife to do in a home, hospital, or birth center. Um but Utah gives a good framework of what the possibilities are in, ter- in terms of yeah, licensure. Yeah, we really and, kind of are the benchmark yeah. of access to care. Yeah. Because can, Utah has said you can have as little training or as much training or going to be completely mm-hmm. licensed or unlicensed. You're going to be a direct entry. So all of those things kind of have a different meaning. But first, I would like to direct people to the NARM has an actual site that goes state by state and talks about their limitations or their access. So um, go to... I I believe it's just narm.org. And then on the left-hand side, there's going to be a, a drop-down menu. You can go state by state. Perfect. And that's a great place to go to research in your area. Um, because to be honest, you can go into an area and find a lay midwife anywhere. You know, the Amish have midwives that don't have training and they serve their community and they may be illegal or they may be illegal, mm-hmm. but they're still there. So midwifery is, you know, yeah. Um, an ancient practice. It's an so. ancient practice. Okay, so in Utah, what is the, what is, um, well, I'll just feed you. What is a certified professional midwife versus a professional midwife versus a direct entry midwife versus a CNM? All so those things. We have, well, let's, let's talk about DEM first. That's okay, a direct, direct entry, mid- entry midwife. And that direct entry portion refers to you don't have a nursing degree first. And, and technically, any CPM is also a direct entry midwife. And so they, you can have different... CPM is a certified, certified professional, professional midwife. midwife. So you can have different designations. So a direct entry means I didn't go to nursing school first. I went directly to midwifery. Um, and 
anybody can put the title DEM behind their name once they've once they have reached the point of self um, acclaimed tra- uh, training, mm-hmm. and so that's important to know. So DEMs don't have to have any formalized training. They don't have to go to university or trade school. It's basically a self accredited type of thing that say I've been to this many births and I've apprenticed this midwife and I feel I am qualified. I feel that I am um, able to do midwifery. That is a DEM, direct entry midwife. So no training, no licensure, no oversight, but she's delivering. And sometimes these are the women that can get into access where where professionals can't. So um, very, very rural, (laughs) very hard word, rural areas, um, a lot of DEMs would serve that area. And they have their place. Mm-hmm. And a lot of communities that might be their only access to care. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no there's no reason to, you know, downplay or down talk no, any t- different um, type of midwife. I know of a DEM in another country who delivered a, um, a Siamese twins vaginally. So that's the kind wow. of stuff that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a license would... would um, <laughs> It wasn't on purpose. But But a licensed midwife would be prohibited from Mm -hmm. um, moving forward on that type of care. So yeah, DEMs have their place. Mm -hmm. And in Utah, the nice thing about a DEM is um, they can do twins, they can do breach, they can do VBACs. And some of the licensure here in Utah limits that. And so VBAC is a vaginal birth after cesarean. So then um, the next level would be then a CPM. Yeah, certified professional midwife. And the certified portion comes from the NARM, the North American Registry of Midwives. And they have a set of um, minimum expectations and a minimum um, clinical experience. So you have to do X amount of prenatals, X amount of postpartum. You have to do so many births that you're there as a witness and then so many that you're there as a primary support and so once you finished all that, then you actually sit for the NARM exam. And when you complete the clinical portion and then you complete the test, you receive the title of a certified professional midwife. So this is equivalent to a trade school, like a master electrician. They're not going to the University of, of something. They're going to Correct. Um, an accreditation program. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and the route to CPM is varied. You can do it through a formal college program. You can do it through apprenticeship only. So um, the end result is everybody has to pass the same test. But in order to get to the point they're ready to take the test, there are different paths. And one of my friends just recently took it. My goodness, she studied so hard. Yeah. <laughs> These They it's know rigorous. their stuff. It's rigorous. This is not a, to be taken lightly. Women will spend years and years working towards yep. getting their certification yep. through NARM. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you've got CNMs. So CNMs are certified nurse midwives. Certified nurse midwives start off with a bachelor's degree. They go into nursing program. And after their nursing program, they go into an advanced degree program to become certified nurse midwives. They're the equivalent of a family nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of get a different, you can you can graduate at the same time with a CNM and a family um, nurse practitioner and FNP. And so um, those nurse practitioners can do a little bit more, their scope is a little more broad than a certified professional midwife meaning they can do gynecological, Mm. they can do pap smears, they can prescribe, they can, um, but that limitation again is very stringent on their nursing um, limits. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're, um, precluded from being able to participate in what we would consider marginal or high risk um, births. So those twins, those VBACs, those um, breach deliveries, they're going to have more strict um, limitations on and access it, and to that. And they are usually working under the direction of an OB. 
So generally speaking, mm, yes, sometimes. they are either they're uh, any of your hospital midwives are going to be a CNM, and mm-hmm. some CNMs choose to work out of the hospital, and some states require them to have an OBGYN that is their overseer, and some do not. So because so. I know of some some CNMs, depending on their OB uh, oversight, are allowed to do some things that that other CNMs wouldn't be like. Right. So that's going to be at the discretion of their OBGYN mm-hmm. that they partner with or that they collaborate with. They have a partnership agreement. Okay. So going back, um, just as far as who can work in birth centers and homes. So mm-hmm. direct injury midwives can work at home and sometimes birth centers. If they right. have their own birth center, if they're, they have privileges at somebody else's birth center. We're talking an out of hospital, not a hospital birth center. So hospitals sometimes have their own birth centers. They call them birth centers. Mm-hmm. But these are independent um, facilities that, that call themselves birth suites or birth right. centers. Right. So, and then C, um, certified professional midwife, they can work at homes and sometimes they have their own centers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then CNMs, they're the, they're the, the, but, but CPMs and DEMs, they never work in the hospital. Correct. Ever. So CNMs is the first level where you could go a little either way. So there, I've been to home births with a CNM or hospitals with a CNM. So the CNM can has a lot of flexibility. Well, yes. When they graduate, they have a lot of flexibility. And generally speaking, malpractice insurance um, helps make those decisions for the CNMs. Um, it is my understanding that once you have practiced out of the hospital as a CNM, malpractice will not cover you to go back to practice in a hospital. It's a very, very tricky really? um, transition. They think you've gone to the dark side. Well, okay. they have to cover you as a practitioner mm-hmm. for that 18 year span from the time the baby was born until they're 18 years old. Oh yeah. And so you've and got so liability yeah, that and malpractice means you have to, you, for 18 years prior to that, that day you're insured, they're, they're that taking sense. on the risk. Okay. And then also back backwards, um, the level of insurance will, will change depending on uh, some, some DEMs choose to insure themselves and some don't. So Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so you've got CNMs in the hospital. And then, of course, you have the OBs. What kind of training do they have? So OBGYNs have uh, a million years of training. All of the years. (laughs) All of the years. So they're advanced. You know, they're going to finish their general um, medical practitioner, and then they're going to go on to advance into specializing in um, obstetrics and gynecology. Um, I was able to speak to the graduating class of the University of Central Florida's OBGYNs. Um, I was pregnant with ACE. So how many years ago is that? Almost five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And the interesting thing about that is um, their training is so based on CYA. Are we allowed to say that? I don't know what that is. Cover your (laughs) rumpus. Um, It's because they've... They've invested so many years. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say this is because I work very closely with a few OBGYNs that some people don't understand why they make the decisions they make. Oh, mm-hmm. my OB forced me to X, Y, Z. But what you have to understand is they've got 12 years of schooling mm-hmm. and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of school invested in that. Mm-hmm. And it takes one scenario for them to lose everything. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of respect for them. And we as a community can really work with them and make Mm -hmm. this a really um, healthy partnership. Or we can kind of sit back and point a finger at their style and cause problems. No, that's not okay. Yeah, Yeah. it's not okay. Again, it's the provider-client mismatch. If you're going in and you're low risk and you would like 
certain elements at your birth, make sure that your OB really does support them. And, and if they say they support them, make sure that the hospital that they have privileges at allows you to do that. Um, some things like um, delayed cord clamping or... Um, immediate skin to skin. Immediate skin to skin or when to make the call for a C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is a pr- provider thing. And I've seen, I've seen OBs that when they have the trust of their clients and... and um, they also, the OB needs to trust the client. Right. Um, when they have that good, strong relationship that they are able to do the most amazing birth experiences <laughs> on the table. <laughs> like, yeah. And because the the OB says, okay, you know your stuff. I trust you as the mom. I trust your intuition. And then the mom in turn says, I'm going to tell you my intuition. I'm going to tell you how I'm feeling. And you tell me medically what that means. And that is the best, I think. And you have to have respect for that. Yeah. And I say the reason why these care provider and client relationships work is because you've you've based it off of trust. Mm-hmm. I say to my clients, um, you know, some women say, I don't want to do prenatal care because it's just annoying and it's not necessary. And all you do is pee on a stick and, and nothing really comes of it. And I say, okay, but really your care is about our relationship. And so the reason we spend 45 minutes to an hour in each visit is so that we can get to know each other. Yeah. Because if there comes a time in your pregnancy or in your labor that something is amiss and I look you in the eye, I want you to know that I am only telling you this because you're in danger and I'm not trying to scare tactic. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to alter your plan. Mm -hmm. And you're going to look me back and you're going to know because of our relationship, you're going to look at me and say, I trust what you're saying is true. Yeah. Because if you don't have that trust, then all of the decisions they're encouraging or discouraging Mm -hmm. will be misconstrued. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I kind of, uh, the thought is coming, it's not well-formed yet, but it's almost like if we can become professional birthing women, yes, then we can meet our professional provider at a, at a completely different level. And so to be a, prof- I'm going to coin that new phrase, copyrighted, just kidding. <laughs> professional birthing woman would not be like you that's had 40,000 children. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> just to clarify, I've had seven live births <laughs> so that people don't think I'm I know, a freak I know, of nature. <laughs> seven. That's still quite a few. But, um, so, but uh, what I think would be a professional birthing woman is somebody who's taken a birth class in the modality of her choice, who's hired a doula who, well, not hired a doula, but her partner's trained. Who has and, assembled her birth support. Who has assembled her birth support and understands exactly. She, she comes and she says, I've got a history of, um, of postpartum hemorrhage and tells her provider that and says, this is what has worked in the past. Um, this is what a provider tried before and this is what caused it. And, and then she knows exactly what um, she believes would keep her safe. And then she picks a provider. Do you know what I think that's called? What? I think that's called being having the stewardship over yourself. Weird. I know. Wait, wait. And we're I allowed think to do in that? Our medical, <laughs> I think in our medical field, we, not I think, I know in our medical um, society and, our, and we're trained to give up that mm-hmm. responsibility, I'm going to call it a responsibility, mm-hmm. to our medical provider. And I think that that is a huge mistake, that it doesn't matter what type of birth you want, you still have the right and the responsibility to make decisions for your body. So what happens when a woman is in, she realizes at 35 weeks that this is not a good fit, that what she thought was going to happen at her birth, her provider is not going to be able to, to give her, she feels unsafe. What does she do at that point? Transfer care. At 35 weeks? Absolutely. I've had women call me at 
38 and 9. I've had women call me at nearly 40 weeks and they're crying and they're saying, I just feel like this is not going well. We had conversations early on in my care and I asked them for X, Y, Z and now mm-hmm. he's mocking me or making me feel like it's not possible. <laughs> yeah, that's and not okay. And I say, you know, you know, you can even transfer care all the way up until you're in labor. Um, that's I kind of led you in that question because then I want to tell a story about how I got hired at 6 a.m. Um 15 minutes after the midwife got hired for a baby that was born at 1130. Nice. So <laughs> there's <happens>. that too. <laughs> I actually was, I was talking to my main assistant this week. Um, all of the names will be left out where she said that one of her backup doulas was um, supporting a woman who showed up to a hospital that remained unnamed with a inflatable birth pool that had been previously approved. And oh, wow. The midwife got approval. The hospital admin supposedly gave an approval. So the mom showed up with her pool, started setting it up. And, um, the risk assessment manager of some sort walked in the room and said, sorry, you're not having a water birth with an inflatable pool. We don't have flood insurance. Like we can't, we can't cover your pool. What, you know, that it's going to flood our fun times. And so they sat there and I don't know if it was an induction. I don't know how they had the time to do this, but they all sat there and discussed it and said, we're not going to take, we're not going to just take this lying down. And they packed up their pool and they left. They packed up that pool and took it out. <laughs> and so I, I well, know first that of they all, ended up... to bring a pool into a hospital right, right on. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And, but whatever had whatever ended up happening, I don't know where they ended up delivering, they had the birth that they wanted. Mm-hmm. So what happens when the birth doesn't go as as you wanted. Like you have this this plan and then, well, like her, she she planned, she had it all lined out. She was super excited about bringing her birth pool into the hospital. I've never heard that, but you know, there's a first yeah. for everything. Um, and then she didn't get her birth. Did that crush her? What, did, what is... I think there's a huge, um, you have to make a decision on who's in charge. And it, there's a huge letdown if you go into it thinking you're going to get a certain type of outcome. And then that emotional letdown if that didn't happen. And I think a lot of times our doula support is um, a perfect time and place to help process that, that disappointment that... I, you know, say you were planning to have a home birth and at the last minute, the midwife says, you've risked out. It is not safe for you to have this baby at home. And then that massive disappointment. And some clients, Mm -hmm. I've had some clients that then um, project that disappointment onto me. It was my fault that they couldn't have a home birth. I said, my job is to keep you safe. Yeah. And if that safety factor is removed because of an element that is out of our control, you're like, you can be mad at me all day long, but my job is to keep you and baby safe. Awesome. So I think what it all comes down to is accepting responsibility and ownership for every decision that we're in. And I think that's the informed consent. If you have not been informed and you do not give your consent, you do not listen to, educate yourself, invest time, and that is through childbirth education and reading books and talking to people. If you really haven't invested, you're going to feel a lack. You're going to feel a disappointment. So be professional. I think that that's the perfect way to do it. Approach this in a very professional way or do all your research and assemble your team that's going to give you that ideal birth outcome. Well, you know, kind of like back to the bride, be a professional bride. Be yep. If you want these things at your, at your birth, just like you wanted them at your wedding, make sure that all the, the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted. 
Um, if you don't care about a certain aspect, let it go ahead and surrender to that. And But how you have a successful wedding is mm-hmm. clear communication. Co- yes, yes. And clear boundaries. Uh, boundaries and expectations. And if you come into it thinking that you've communicated and then you find that there's a lack there, that was a lack of communication. So really communicate. That's not a shame thing. You're not broken. No, no. And, <laughs> yeah. and we make those mistakes. We get mm-hmm. emotional and we and we make these these decisions that alter, you know, that vision. Especially of when what family and relationships are at stake too. Oh, absolutely. Don't want to offend. And, absolutely. Wow. Take them all out. No, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> no, no, don't do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I I really appreciate all of the clarification that you've given us and and. Thank you. On Absolutely. behalf of the entire community for helping training so many doulas. I mean, how many babies, do you, how many births do you think you've influenced just by being a... Oh, well, mine alone, I'm somewhere around 640, but I haven't calculated how many births that have, you know, un- under my training, like how many doulas mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even be able to... So I don't want to spoiler alert, but I am so dang excited for Dee because she is expanding her, her trainings internationally. Yep. And so this is, um, we're going to... We're going to keep you on and yep. follow up in the future with how, how um, birth trainings go in other cultures. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.